out of the park baseball is already the best baseball simulator out there and it's gotten even better with the release of their new perfect team mode perfect team is their foray into the ultimate team card collecting modes that have revolutionized the online experience for sports games if you already have ootp 19 then you have perfect team just go to the home page and click perfect team on the right hand side and you'll begin with your six starter packs to build the team. And from there, you can choose to open more packs or dive into the robust auction house and use perfect points to craft the team that you want. The depth of players is truly amazing with a card for every player present on an MLB roster, as well as legendary throwbacks like Babe Ruth, Walter Johnson, Cy Young, like Daryl Strawberry, Larry Walker, Manny Ramirez, all the way down to novelty players like Bob Euchre and Snuffy Sternweiss. That's right. I said Snuffy Sternweiss. That's a real player. Once you have your team, you build your lineups, you build your rotation, you pick the strategy that you want. You want to run a small ball team. You want to be a full sabermetrician. You want to be somewhere in between. You want to run an unorthodox. You can choose you know, how often that you're stealing, how often you're using shifts, the slowness or quickness of the hook for pitchers and relievers. A lot of detail there that you can set for the team and how it will run during the simulations. Uh, and once you set all that, you submit your team and the game simulates outcomes every 30 minutes from 9 a.m. to midnight central. Seasons run from Monday to Sunday with every day of the week covering a month and then Sundays covering the playoffs. Will you make the playoffs and be promoted to the next level or finish with one of the worst records in the league and possibly face relegation down to a previous level? Download the game for just $20 at ootpdevelopments.com and use code SLEEPER19 for a 10% discount at checkout. That's ootpdevelopments.com. episode 644 of the sleeper in the bust it is thursday valentine's day february 14th and i'm your host paul sport i'm flying solo today i mentioned that i might have nick on on thursday and i hadn't uh, i hadn't recalled that he was going to be out of town and so we're looking to record uh, sometime next week but since i did talk about having a thursday show i figured i'd jump in with a little solo and i am going to play off the fact that it's valentine's day and go ahead and hit uh, and hit you with a little valentine's love and 10 pictures that i love and so what i've done here is kind of grouped them off into 15 15 pitcher 15 pitcher sets here and so i'm going off of that and picking two from each of those for for uh, the top 75 really and just highlighting two guys that I that I really like and maybe giving some well not maybe but definitely giving some reasoning behind that instead of just saying oh I love that guy um, some of these guys you're gonna be well accustomed to uh, to me liking and so you know I can't really apologize for that I, I'm not I don't want to lie and make up a whole bunch of other guys uh, so I will say that you know if you're an avid listener and reader you might know some of these guys but maybe I'll throw in something different as to why I like them um, and then I did try to avoid some of the obvious ones in a couple realms where, you know, I still like other guys. I didn't want to, you know, I, I probably don't need to do another Jamison Tyon thing. So I'll eliminate him from the top 15 there. You guys know, uh, there'll probably be 
There will probably be more talk about why I like Jamison Tyon before the season starts. So I'll spare you that on this one. But let's just jump into it and uh, start with the top 50. Now I'm going off of the top 120 pitchers I listed uh, on the website. You can go find that. Um, you can just look up. Well, if a couple ways. You can just click the SP on the uh, sidebar of the rankings. I'll include it in the show notes as well. How about that? Make it easy for you. But we'll start with the top 15 and talk about Thor, Noah Syndergaard, who I've got eighth. And I'm fully in on here. And, you know, he's not going much lower than that in drafts so far. So it's not like I'm out on an island. This isn't necessarily a sleeper pick or I'm higher than the market on these guys. It's just highlighting 10 that I really like with some reasoning as to why. And Syndergaard, you know, he's the 42nd player off the board, 14th pitcher, and there's no uh, relievers before that. So that that is straight up 14th starter. And he should be, but I have him up at eight because I still really see the premium upside, the absolute top of the heap type upside here. Not just, you know, a, a fantasy one, but not quite the elite of the elite. When you talk about just Thor stuff, it's unquestionably elite. It doesn't, you know, take a pitching coach to see that. Everyone can understand that when you're watching Thor pitch. And now he didn't necessarily extract the uh, the, the top of the scale as far as results go from that stuff last year when he pitched 154 innings, 303 ERA, but a 121 WHIP, and so left. You know, it's a little lacking. But I'm still trying to figure out really what, what what the downside is here necessarily outside of injury, which is the downside with literally every single pitcher. There is no such thing as, as a healthy pitcher who just stays healthy forever. I mean, that's that's a unicorn. There might be a couple, but it's so remarkably rare that I think overdoing that as, as something to hold against a player, I don't know. I, th- I think, okay. Again, I think I talked about this. Uh, This might have just been on one of my streams on Twitch as opposed to on the show. So I will mention it here. While previous injury is no doubt a strong indicator of future injury, excuse me, it's not a 100%. It doesn't mean because you've been injured, you will be injured again. It's just the best indicator. The best doesn't mean it's a a lock. It's a guarantee. So I think that... um, we need to understand that and not necessarily grade injury history so harshly. And because, I mean, we see the ebbs and flows. Jeff's done a lot of great work on injuries and, you know, how sticky they are and, and what to look for as far as the assessment goes. There's going to be a lot of pitchers that get injured. And so I guess what my point is, mainly with Thor, is don't bypass him if injury is the reason, thinking that you're getting some remarkably healthy asset in his same range, but but a lesser player. If you fully believe that Blake Snell is just better, okay, that that's totally cool. Uh, Luis Severino, Trevor Bauer, you know, guys in that range. But if in your heart of hearts you'd say, Noah Syndergaard is better, but I'm going to shirk the injury risk and go with this player here, whoever it is, one of the ones I named or, you know, somebody else in that range, that's where, that's where you lose me. That's where you lose me. So basically you could think about it, particularly at the high end here, that if, if, if it's something that if, if they're a high end guy, top 20, 
five-ish are kind of the high end. Maybe treat them with, say, Steamer 600 gloves, which Steamer 600 is actually in response to the plate appearances. I think it's more of a uh, Steamer 180 for pitchers. In fact, let me pull it up. It's a 200, Steamer 200 with pitchers. So basically what that does is it gives everyone 600 plate appearances and 200 innings and then sees what they're up to. Don't uh, don't get so hung up on the uh, on the potential innings count. Let's let's level the playing field and then judge these guys. And if you believe that with those innings, Noah Syndergaard would be the top six pitcher, you should probably take him sixth because I don't think that the guys that um, you know in this theoretical case six is Garrett Cole and Thor's fourteen in the average draft position of NFBC. I don't think from Cole to Kershaw, which is 6-12, to 12, has an inherently better chance of staying healthy, a tangibly better chance than Syndergaard. Um, so again, if you just don't believe in Syndergaard's stuff and you don't think that he can morph into more of a pitcher than a thrower or whatever the case, that's fine. But if it's just health, I'd reconsider that. Unless you're in a draft with me, definitely consider that and let me take him because I love him. To that point, probably leads me into my next one really well. Clayton Kershaw. Now, I understand the concerns with him, and and honestly, some of Jeff's studies about injury proneness and and chronic stuff is that um, when it is a a concentrated issue and continues to happen, that is of higher risk. So particularly with Kershaw's back, so I fully get that. But in a in a rough season for him, 161 innings, he still put up a 2.73 ERA and 104 WHIP. You know, the skills were still up there pretty strongly. They, they did come down. They were definitely a, a drop down from what we saw from Kershaw from 14 to 17 with a, uh, it's actually from 13 to 17. There was, you know, it was a six-year low in strikeout-to-walk ratio at 19%. Previous years were 25, 30, 29, 28, and 20. But I don't, I, I think people are trying to get rid of the hot potato in case this is like the beginning of a sharp slide. And I'm not sure I really saw a sharp slide when I when I saw what was up with Kershaw, acknowledging that you know the velo fell. Like I I understand all the all the concerns. I really do. I don't think that they're. Um, I don't think that's invalid to acknowledge those. I guess where I differ a little bit is that I don't see those portending a major fall off. Thus, I'm not really running away from him. We're looking for a measure of stability in the pitching realm as much as we can get. If you're telling me that I can get 160 innings of a low 3 ZRA and a, and a low whip with Clayton Kershaw, I'm, I'm taking that because I know what the upside still is. And I don't know that I've seen things, even with the lowered velo and all that, like, Where's really the path to a four plus ERA here that doesn't involve like pitching through injury and having some issues there? I don't really see it. And I mean, I feel like even if it were there for Kershaw, it's more of like a 10th, 20th percentile sort of projection, not something that's anywhere near his 50th, which is kind of the one that you should go off of. If you're kind of breaking it up, I know Picotti used to do that, but projections, as I understand it from from folks, namely Derek Derek Cardi, is the 50th percentile. That that number that they publish is the 50th percentile. That's kind of where we're at in the middle here. 
And then obviously there's upside and downside. I don't know how much of, I, I don't think there's much of Kershaw's downside outside of maybe a 10th or 15th percentile projection that really puts him over four. So you talk about buying floor with Kershaw, it's there. I don't think that the bottom falls out. I don't really see a case where that happens. Unless you're really projecting further degradation of the skills. Like you just really see them bottoming out. And I don't. So that that might just be a spot where where we differ um, on Clayton Kershaw. So, you know, I'm just not ready to uh, to run away here. I'm sticking with Kirsch. So Thorne Kirsch in my top tier. One thing I wanted to end with was if you if you take the qualification down real quick, 260 innings because Kershaw didn't quite qualify. He had to throw 162 innings. He threw 161 and a third, I believe. But if you bring the qualifications down, he was 16th in strikeout minus walk rate. It's 19.4%. There's a couple ties in there, so you could say it was like the 12th highest if you account for ties. But let's just put him where he is, 16th. And we're, and we're talking about this as like a struggle season, as a concern, as a not-so-thumbs-up Kershaw season. And he was 16th in strikeout minus walk rate, which is just a great metric to kind of look at. You know, it's not an end-all, be-all. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a stud. Nick Pavetta was 14th, and he had a 477 ERA. But everybody else ahead of Kershaw was three, was in the threes, and only Paxton was higher than 3.7. It was Paxton at 376, Marquez at 377, and Pavetta at 477. Nobody else was above 339. That's the next highest number. So I'm not I'm not jumping off the Kershaw ship right now, and I'll take my discount and run with it. Moving on to the second 15 here of, of 10 pitchers I love for this year, 16 through 30. Start with Carlos Martinez again. Gonna get away from some of the more obvious ones that uh, that I've really talked about, but still sticking with some guys that I do like. You know, I really like Clevenger. Always been a David Price fan. Uh, we took Zach Wheeler in the draft. I've been big on, you know, I'm still big on him. And Madison Bumgarner probably, you know, really kind of fits some of the similar stuff I'm saying about Kershaw where I'm just not quitting him. Uh, his is more of a gut feel, though. I, I've freely admitted that with Bumgarner. So that's why I'm going to jump down. I'm actually in the last uh, in the last group here. With Martinez at 26 and the other guy at 28. But Carlos Martinez is somebody, this is more of a, a, a buyback situation, kind of a last year's semi-bums. He wasn't really a bum per se, but he was definitely somebody that kind of, you know, didn't meet expectations, particularly finishing the season in the bullpen, um, only only making it 119 innings to begin with, and having a 135 whip. He's never been like some big whip guy because Carlos Martinez usually walks a decent number of guys. So you're never like, whoa, he really aided my whip. But he was at 122 the last two years. So going up to 135, that's pretty significant. It's the the third highest of his career and the highest of any season over 90 innings. Uh, but the ERA was still 311, which kind of shows you. See, I see seasons like this and I take positives from it. Now, granted there, you know, it, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't positive the way it, it ended up, but there are positives in it. And for me, it's the fact that he was able to put up, have such issues, right? Health, um, walking even more, 12%, you know, putting a lot of guys on base then at, at 135 and still came out with the 311. 
part of it was definitely some good favor, right? Anytime you get a five percent home and a fly ball rate, you're 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 living right, and that aided a point four homer per nine. But he was also he he showed that his stuff, even when it's not at peak, was able to work out of jams, was able to save him, and help keep a three eleven ERA despite the struggles. So again. You know, I, I saw I saw some positives out of what Carlos Martinez did last year. You look at the FIP; it was 351. It was actually an improvement from la- the last two years. Uh, let's look at xFIP real quick because of that home run rate. Now it was 442, right? It, it, so a lot of a lot of that FIP is saying that hey, look at that home run rate, which I would not expect to stand. But I I look at his home run career. And I believe it more. I believe the 0.4 for Carlos Martinez in 2018 more than the 1-2 in 2017. Because his career marks are 0.3, 0.4, 0.7, 0.69. Nice. And yes, I went out the extra digit just to say 6-9. And then 0.4. So last year was kind of getting back on track. Now, uh, and then the previous year was a bit of an outlier with a 16% homer to fly. And then some homers shooting up. So for me, I see a 27-year-old who's gone a buck 95 twice, 180 another time, uh, has had some injuries for sure, but still has dynamic stuff that I really like. He added this cutter last year that was kind of interesting. Definitely had a positive pitch value. Only his curveball had a negative pitch value, and it was only minus 0.6, and he didn't really use it much. So it doesn't really matter. So I th- I still think there's a lot to like here. I think his his reputation is down a little bit in the market. No one's really dying to, to draft Carlos Martinez. And so I'm ready to be there to snap him up. He's at 127 ADP uh, and the 45th pitcher off the board. Now that includes relievers because that's the way the uh, average draft position goes with uh, with NFBC. But there's, there's a bunch of closers around him. To give you an idea of where that is, it's the Jose Leclerc, Kirby Yates, Wade Davis, Corey Kniebel are the closers around him. And then uh, Luis Castillo and Kyle Hendricks are the starters around him. So it's probably, I want to say like Leclerc and Yates and Rysel Iglesias, that's like the 10 to 13 range of closer. So let's just take 12 people out and that would put him at 32 for Carlos Martinez. Um, and I have him as my 26th starter. So I am a little bit higher on on Martinez. And now as we move on to my next one, maybe I'm starting to see a little bit of a pattern emerge here. So I'll try not to just repeat the same stuff. Although this one's a little bit uh, riskier than the others, without a doubt. It's you Darvish, who I have at 28. And yeah, it's just a, it's just a buyback on on some health and again trying to gamble and this is just a, a further extension of a theory or, or strategy that i talk about a lot when the skills are in place i'm gonna gamble on the health I'm, I'm happy to just gamble on that health and take my shots there within reason of course i'm not trying to you know overdraft guys like that and now as far as the skills being in place, they dropped off last year for Darvish in those bad 40 innings that he threw. 495-143 ERA whip combo, walk rate spiked up to a career worst 12%. Swinging strike rate dipped down a little bit, a tick off at 11%. And home runs were through the roof, which actually kind of kept up a trend from 2017. So there are some issues with Darvish. Openly admit that. 32-year-old, though, coming back from kind of a lost season. I think there's a good buyback price here. With Darvish going around pick 141, if you're getting him in that range there, that's ninth, 10th round in 15-team leagues, which is the ADP that I'm looking at here with the NFBC, if I'm getting him in that range, I just think that's a reasonable 
price to, to buy back something that, you know, let's say he only kind of gets back to 2017. 386 ERA, 116 whip with a 27% strikeout rate. That's 10.1 strikeouts per nine for those curious. I'm in. Are you kidding me? 200 strikeouts? He did that in 187 innings for Darvish. And a full season in the National League? I'm in. And I still think there's more, potentially, if you talk about what he did from 13 to 16, when he never had an ERA higher than 341 and uh, had whips of 107, 112, and 126. So that last one was was off, you know, was was high, but the other two are really strong. So I see a lot to like from Darvish still. I understand the uncertainty. That's why we're getting him so cheap. So let me sign up and take him as you know. Again, do a little deletion here. David Robertson. This is around here. It's not too much further than Carlos Martinez, but there's about four or five more more relievers here. So take off 17. Take off 12 uh, or 16, 17 off of his 53rd ranking here or slotting. That's 36th. If he's about the 36th starter off the board for Darvish, let me let me let me have it. I've got a 28th, so I'm in. Next two uh, in the 31 to 45 range, really like Charlie Morton, and um, you know I was thinking about something the other day. I know some folks are actually worried about him potentially being used as an opener. And I'm wondering why I'm wondering why that's not being seen as a major, major positive. Do we not recall what happened with Ryan Yarbrough last year in this role? So you're telling me you're going to take my guy Charlie Morton, who put up a 313-116 ERA last year with a 29% strikeout rate in 167 innings, 362-119 the year before in 147 innings. You're telling me you're going to take away. The first time through the order, the first time facing the top three hitters, and and let him start in the second inning. So you're going to take that away, so make things easier on him. You're going to bring him in in the first inning, let him go the second through the sixth or seventh. Uh, wait, that'd be second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Yeah, sixth through the sixth or seventh innings, and get his five six innings that way, putting him in a better position for wins. You're going to do that for my man Charlie Morton when Ryan Yarbrough was able to net 16 dubs doing that in 147 innings with a 391 ERA and a 129 whip and just uh, 128 strikeouts? Yeah, I am signing up for that. I want that. Give me that. Please make Charlie Morton an opener. He went 15-3 and last year. He damn well might repeat it. And I don't project wins. And I certainly don't, you know, project a gaudy win win loss to return because that's it's just so difficult to do that but he damn well might go 15 and 3 again for charlie morton if he's an opener please use an opener with him i have zero zero issue with that i think i think he could chase down 20 wins i'm not even kidding i i wonder if we could go through his his uh in you know it's just one sample so it's not really even worth it but we could go through his game log find some of those no decisions that he had and and see where maybe if he had just come in a little bit later and, and it kind of been in there in the heart of, of the middle innings there and turned it over to the bullpen late, if he could have gotten some dubs. I'm sure he could have considering that in none of his no decisions did he give up more. Actually, in one of his no decisions, he gave up more than three, and it was four. And in three of his losses, he only gave up two. Excuse me, it was three, two, and six in those three losses. So one, you know, that's a loss. But the two and the three, if those come in the opener innings and your team, you know, scored in a different situation, 
you might have been good to go. So Charlie Morton as a, as an opener is or with an opener. I am so 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 here for it. It would not bother me even one percent. Now we jump back onto the uh, more obvious ones of of guys that I like here, and I think we're in the third tier, sixth guy here. Yeah, Luis Castillo, right? Y'all just like groan, like, okay, yeah, he wasn't kidding when he said more obvious ones. Again, I've made it clear this off season already that I'm just not, I'm not buckling um, and running away after that after that first year. Obviously, he didn't pan out to the level that I thought and hoped last year when I was drafting Castillo rather high and kind of, you know, saying that I really believed in, in what we what we saw and that we're going to get a breakout. But it also wasn't a complete dud season. Um, he really finished strong in the second half after after just kind of a brutal first. I mean, it was really the, the old tale of two halves, 549 ERA, 138 whip in the first, 244.97 in the second, strikeouts went up, walks came down, everything was just uh, better at that point for, for Luis Castillo. And I feel like we kind of saw what we'd been waiting for, or at least what I'd been waiting for without trying to get too heavy into the uh, confirmation bias of it. Like, ha, that's what I was looking for all year. Okay, sure, you might have been looking for that all year, but why didn't we get it early on? And is it something that it is, we should be fearful of repeating, of seeing it repeat in the first half of this year? I then know Nick, uh, Nick Pollock of PitcherList and of Fireside Chats here has speculated that maybe it has something to do with uh, with a, a first-half weather situation. Maybe he doesn't get going until he warms up because we saw in the first half of, or excuse me, in the second half of 17 when he broke out in the majors. That I mean, that's that was all summertime. Uh, though he broke out from a big first half feasibly in the uh, in the colder weather. Actually, as I say that, I see that he was in Pensacola, which is Florida. So I don't know, maybe Luis Castillo does like the heat. I'm not going to go there yet. And I don't think that that's like the the uh, leading situation or, or, or leading argument one way or another for Nick. So I don't want to put that on him as like tagging, tabbing that to him as if it's the only thing he says with regards to Luis Castillo. He's just throwing it out as maybe a potential consideration. But um, again, everything was back on track in the second half, really obviously stemming off the fastball. Anytime you're going to be putting up a five-something ERA, the way Luis Castillo did for the first half, 549, there's going to be – fastball trouble is there. Yeah, You're just not consistently bad to the point where you're north of a five ERA without fastball trouble. You know, that's just very rarely the case because if you've got a fastball that works – I feel like you can at least, and obviously there's exceptions. We could probably go find some, but you're a much safer bet to live on, on the right side of a four ERA at the very least, if not better. So I just don't, I just don't think that that's what we saw there, uh, or, or that's obviously not what we see there from Castillo. But everything got back on track in the second half. Fastball change up is bread and butter. Slider was actually a, a tinge worse. Um, it was kind of neutral overall. It was 1.1 pitch value in the first half, negative 0.7 in the second half. So kind of a neutral pitch either way because even the 1.1 isn't isn't that incredible. So he really is a fastball changeup. I do still think there's strikeout upside with Luis Castillo because of the slider, though, because when it is working, he can get a lot, a lot of swing and misses with it, and you, compare, you pair it with the changeup. If he has two true swing and miss pitches – 
Well, then obviously, I mean, we're talking somebody who could possibly put up a 30% strikeout rate at that point with Luis Castillo. And I do think buying back in, although Justin and I have talked about it on the show, there's not really a major discount here. But buying back in on Luis Castillo after kind of the, the flop season, expectations down, I really do wish there was a, a bit more of a uh, of a discount. But he's going at the 110 range. He was, I believe he finished the draft season kind of firmly in that top 100. So maybe there's like a 10, 10 pick drop. But it's not much. You know, I kind of thought I'd be getting Luis Castillo around the 130s, 140s. Uh, this year, you know, with say that'd be with Masahiro Tanaka, Chris Archer, um, Jay Happ, and then you Darvish. Um, as as far as ADP goes, I kind of thought that's where Luis Castillo would live, but he's up here at pick one ten, and the pitchers around him are Charlie Morton, the aforementioned. I didn't even know they were going back to back like that, and then David Price. There is some split there, by the way. There aren't a lot of starters that are right around that one ten mark. It's uh, actually two closers right after his teammate, Rysel Iglesias and Jose Leclerc, and then Wade Davis, and then Carlos Martinez down at 126. So I'm surprised that the market is willing to buy in as much. So it's not like I'm really zigging, um, you know, to, to go against the market to stay bought in on Luis Castillo. It seems that the general market has agreed. Let's go ahead and stick here. So, But I still love him. I'm still going to be buying him. I know some folks have sworn off, but that that is a smaller contingent than you might have thought when uh, uh, when the season wrapped up and we knew what, what Castillo had on the board. All right, next up is the fourth of our tiers here. We're looking at pitchers 46 through 60 on my list, uh, on my top 120 right now. And I will go back to the well with one, but probably uh, try to get a little bit deeper here with the, with the why on Jimmy Nelson. I've got him. You know, I could have done Musgrove. It was, it was Musgrove or Nelson. Actually, you know what? Let's do let's do Musgrove. Pardon me, taking a little drink there. Let's let's call an audible and do Musgrove here because Jason and I just drafted him in the labor draft too. So he's kind of fresh on the brain with that, and and I couldn't really talk Jason into Jimmy Nelson. So we'd have had one of the two. I have them back to back at 47, 48 for me. Uh, Musgrove. Let me give you some ADPs. Musgrove is going 208. So he's, he's going pretty late. I think Nelson's going even later. Nelson going 234. So they're kind of close to each other there as well. But uh, they're back-to-back in my ratings as top 50 starters. I'm really excited about both. I think Joe Musgrove, you know, this is definitely a buyback in on some hype from last year. I, I, I think there is a discount here too. I want to say he was going within the top 200, but I can't quite recall on Joe Musgrove's stock last year. In fact, let me take a quick look. I actually have... A little 2018 ADP that I think I can call it pretty quickly. I can. So let me see. I'll do that here. Again, we're calling an audible, so we're doing things on the fly. Please bear with me as you hear the pitter-patter of me typing. No, this is this is a more expensive price. He was an afterthought last year. 380. 380 was Musgrove's ADP. So this is more expensive, but not commensurate with what I think he did. So that that more accurately describes it because I thought he should be a little bit more expensive. Now, again, I don't want him to be when I'm in my draft rooms, but he is up at 208. Joe Musgrove is after a 406 ERA, 118 whip combo, uh, 16% strikeout minus walk ratio built on his 5% strikeout rate, or excuse me, 5% strikeout rate, 5% walk rate. We're in big trouble if he puts up a 5% strikeout rate. He's in big trouble, so we don't want that at all. 
But one of the main things I like about Musgrove is I think uh, he did well in his first full season as a full-ish, 115 innings, 19 starts. There was an injury there. But uh, as a full-time starter is what I really meant because he wasn't between the pen and rotation last year. His 19 appearances were all starts. He did have the shoulder strain to start the season, so he didn't even start till May 25th. That's probably what kept his price down, too. I don't know if he got hurt in spring or was he coming in with the injury. Can't remember. But anyway, and then he had a right an infection in his right finger that cost him just like one trip through. But it was really missing, you know, not starting his season until May 25th that limited him to 115 innings. But I liked what I saw in those those 115 innings, particularly with that walk rate, because I think there's some strikeout upside here too. And if it doesn't, you know, damage the walk rate to, to garner the strikeouts, or if it just pushes it back a little, right? I think he can be in the, uh, you know, north of 25% with his strikeout rate. With his depth of arsenal, I think Joe Musgrove absolutely does have it in him. Um, he works off of his fastball. His fastball is, is a really good pitch. Um, he does have kind of two. He has he has a, a true sinker and and four seamer. I think that uh, that both can be effective for him. I wouldn't I wouldn't hate if he pushed away more from the sinker though. And, and focused a bit more on, on his four-seamer because I think that that's really more of a bread-and-butter pitch. And, you know, you've heard Nick talk about it with regards to how he feels about sinkers. He kind of wants guys to start going away from them, and the more that somebody relies on a sinker, the less likely yeah, he has to, to be bought in, you know. Plus, you really have to look at other factors if they ride a sinker heavy. But that's not what Musgrove does, so I don't really want to get bogged down in that consideration. I do want to talk about what those pitches are able to do. The changeup can be a real swing and miss monster. So can the slider. So working off of a foundational fastball to that slider changeup combo, I really think Musgrove can push, like I said, a 25% strikeout rate and maybe even approach the upper 20s. We're talking 28 plus um, You know when things are working. Now, I don't think he's going to sacrifice his efficiency and control for that. So it will have to come with just command of better pitches, re- refining his arsenal, choosing the spots better to garner the full swing and miss as opposed to just get the the ground out or the rollover, you know, things like that. So we really liked Musgrove there. I think he ended up being our third pitcher or fourth. Let me take a look at that. I actually have that handy as well. He's our third pitcher behind Wheeler and Price. And I really think he can take a step forward this year in volume too. It is a situation where um, 180 innings of what he did last year. While it would be a bit of a disappointment, particularly on the ERA with, at 406, I d- definitely believe he can be a mid threes kind of guy. Um, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a full fledged disappointment in terms of what we paid and what we really expected of a full dollar value. Because if you get 185 innings of a 118 WHIP, like that's pretty good. It, it's weird sometimes how you know we look at the ERA and WHIP combo, and some folks will just easily and, and kind of blindly accept a higher whip if the ERA is pretty, um, you know, and under three basically is what that means. But the inverse is is rarely true. I think there's something jarring about kind of the brain really knowing that, you know, anything four plus is kind of teetering. Anything under three is great. Under two, you know, is good. I mean, under three is good. Under two is elite. You know, we, we have those triggers instantly with the with the ERA. I don't think they're there with whip. That when you see a 135, you should treat that pretty badly. 
as far as a, a whip goes for a starter. I'm actually going to bring it up and see what that would be as far as um, ranking this past year because it's not good. Yeah, a 135, if, if, if we're just talking about qualified stars, so it's a, it's a small 62 sample right now. It's actually 160 innings because I have the same board up from when I talked about Kershaw. So let me even tamp it down. Let me go down here to uh, 110 because that would bring in Musgrove in this instance. You see a 135 whip, you should you should kind of balk at that pretty quickly and treat it more like a, because that's, that's a bottom 30 out of 130 starters whip. You should treat it like you do, say, let me see, like you like you would a 450 ERA. And yet, I think if somebody has like a 370 ERA and a 135 whip, it's generally more accepted than if, say, you're Joe Musgrove, you have a 406 ERA and a 118 whip in terms of, you're still getting one good ratio, right? And maybe I'm maybe I'm projecting here because I, I feel like I make those snap judgments, but I... I definitely feel like I hear people get a less leeway in terms of being categorized as a quality pitcher when they rely more on whip than ERA when it should be the opposite. Whip is more skill-based, particularly with walks, but also even limiting hits. We know now that guys have some control over how they limit hits based on the contact that they, that they can garner and um, the, how playable they can make it for their defense. So we should see a whip like Joe Musgrove's, like a 118, and be like, oh, okay, that's good. Now, if he can get his ERA to go and check with that, that's really nice. Um, the way we would do with somebody who has a, a mid-threes ERA, but a bad whip, and we say, oh, you know, look at that ERA. If his whip comes, it comes. No, no, no. It should be the opposite. Anyway, I'm rambling at this point, but I am trying to drive that, that point home. Without ties, Joe Musgrove's whip was 39th. And uh, because it's the way the number works, you know, you're talking about there's several 112s, 113s, 114s. He was at 118. So if you want to talk about X highest, it was probably just eyeballing it like the 25th highest figure. It just happened to have a bunch of ties that push him to 39 for Joe Musgrove. So anyway, the bottom line takeaway there is Musgrove has a great whip or had a great whip last year. I think it was based on some things that he does well. He doesn't walk guys. So if the hits are relatively in check, and they were at 8-8 last year, which isn't even that great, but he walked so few that I believe his stuff is deep enough to improve, uh, deep enough and good enough to show some improvements with the strikeout rate, which I think would also trickle to the hit rate. Because if he's nastier, he's allowing fewer hits. So that's going to improve the whip further while also bringing that ERA under three. And in summation, shouts to Alex Fast on that one, I really like Joe Musgrove. And that's why we took him. And that's why he's one of my uh, 10 Valentine's starters here. Moving on, I hope that wasn't too convoluted. It probably was but I really hope it wasn't. If it was and you need more clarification, just hit me up on Twitter, at Spore. Oh, the next one in this tier, this 46 to 60, is one little repeaty in terms of I've, I've made clear that I like him. I'm not sure that I've said more than just it was the cutter for him. Though. It's Anibal Sanchez, who I do have 54th among my starters, and I believe he was a reserve pick in the labor draft yeah 25th round look man like i said i am not expecting a repeat here but there was 
a tangible difference to what he was doing last year. And it wasn't even the strikeout and walk rate. Yeah, the strikeout rate went up, but the walk rate actually ticked up a little bit. But to a really healthy 7%, which is kind of where he's lived in the, in the uh, <clears throat> excuse me, 6 to 8% since 2010. So that's always been good. Strikeouts kind of waver a little bit, but they bounce back up. They're never really bad. He always has a 20% rate, Anibal Sanchez does, um, at least in the last seven years. But it was a new pitch that fostered an improvement of his stuff in being less hittable, both over the yard and even in the yard. He dropped his hits way, way, way down from 11.9 to 6.7, or excuse me, to 7.0 flat. And... His home run rate came down with it to a manageable .99 after several years, three years, well above one and a half, one seven, one eight, two two. Those were his home run rates. He threw over 105 innings in all three of those seasons. That's horrific for Anibal Sanchez. And so, health, at least a modicum of it, he was not healthy all year. I don't think expecting an Anibal Sanchez, a 35 year old Anibal Sanchez, to stay fully healthy is unrealistic. But that's why he's so 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 cheap. And it wasn't arm issues, it was a strained hamstring, which if I have to choose an injury, I'm going to take the lower half over arm, even though lower half can really affect things. But I've got that, I've got a new pitch to, so it's not just like some BABIP luck or, you know, just magic in a bottle for a few weeks. It was a damn quality season from Anibal Sanchez and no one seems to want to pay attention because he's 35 and he had three crap years before that. Well, if there were no changes, sure. But I think we saw tangible changes here. I love Anibal Sanchez. I'm going to continue to take the discount. I think it was Rob Silver who suggested on on his podcast that this price would really rise over draft season. And we're not nearly like in the throes of draft season yet. But it's starting at a pretty low spot. Now, he's only 252 in um, in NFBC right now, which I think is is higher substantially so than where he went in this draft let me let me do the math real quick yeah he went 365 in the labor mix draft that's that's wild and we looked at him a couple times brandon woodruff was available when we were really considering a starter and animal was there we talked about him we almost went woodruff o'neill but we wanted to get tyler o'neill if he if if o'neill hadn't been there I could have seen us going Woodruff Sanchez there to get a young guy with the with the kind of crusty vet who did really well and then just not taking one of Lugo or Faria. So, I mean, we let him go too. Um, but again, we favor Luke Weaver and Brandon Woodruff as a group. And you make compromises. Now, drafting by myself, as much as I like Luke Weaver, excuse me, I hit the mic there, um, I, I probably would have taken Sanchez somewhere in there. But that was an easy compromise with Jason there because I'm not so sold on Anibal Sanchez and against Luke Weaver. So you find common ground on somebody and, you know, we're talking in the glob here. So even though I have Sanchez where I do and um, I have Sanchez at 54 and Luke Weaver at 77, you know that you can make cases for 76, 77, 75, which is actually Woodruff, Gray and Weaver. And we have all three of them. You can make that case for those guys over someone as high as 54. So I was able to give on that. And it wasn't something that I was hard-lined on like, yo, we got to take Anibal Sanchez here. I'm going to get my shares of him too. A little bit of it is diversifying too. As much as I like to get similar guys across teams, because if I believe in those guys, why wouldn't I want you know to stock up? I'm not trying to cheer for every outcome. And I play so many teams that you could get into that that sort of um, 
not habit, but that, that could kind of happen if you draft all these super diverse teams that nothing similar. But where I will diversify the portfolio, so to speak, is with the the back catalog of starters, those second half of your rotation starters, so that I'm getting tickets of a bunch of my guys. And some of the ones that I favor more, I'll have a few extras of, but I want to I wanna get a dip of everything. So I'm going to get my Sanchez shares. We didn't do it here, but I do like what he did last year, and I do think there's viability to it that um, that should get more respect than pick 365. But again, I was in the draft as well. I contributed to that. I'm just surprised that nobody else jumped. Uh, let me see if there's any pitchers that I'm really like, how did he go ahead of Annabelle Sanchez? Well, Tuki Toussaint went in the 17th round. That seems that seems a little early. Um, I like the raw stuff, and that but that's Tim McLeod. He's a prospect guy. I do trust. I do trust. This is Marco Gonzalez, Jake Junis, um, Trevor Williams. Dylan Bundy, Elise Chassin, you know, I mean, there were there were a handful, right? And it's not to discredit any of those guys because if they see them in the blob, they're going to make the same argument. Maybe they just keep picking the younger guys, right? Okay, I think Junis and Sanchez are the same. Well, let me take the guy who's 10 years younger. Okay, cool. I get that. It's Sanchez versus Trevor Williams. Okay, well, Trevor Williams has a better park. Uh, you know, maybe they saw some things that they liked in that second half last year. It's Jake Seeley. And I'm, we're reluctant to go, you know, to, to push too hard on what he did. I'll critique him if I think there's a deserving critique. But what I'm saying is I, blo- I buy into a lot of his thinking. We share a lot of thinking on players. So I can understand it. You know, I, I can see it. Sanchez, I, he probably doesn't want somebody so old as Sanchez. So he probably picked Trevor Williams because he's just substantially younger and probably has a, a similar ceiling. So I get it. Anyway. I've said I get it like 52 times. Do I get it on Animal Sanchez? I don't know. All right, last group here, last two. One a repeaty, who I've been talking about for years now. And then the other, um, maybe a little bit newer in terms of talking about him making a case for him. So we'll start with Michael Waka. Come on, you guys know. You guys have been around long enough to know uh, my feelings for him. I, I don't see any real reason to move off of him now, though, at this point, because first off, I still haven't seen overwhelming skills degradation that makes me think he can't get back now he did fall off from last year in the previous years it was a lot easier to make the waka case because i was like his skills are still there he has a great run at some point every single year you know i'm I'm just buying on on you know buying on the health that he can finally put it all together that's what i was saying in previous years for waka well last year Weirdly, he had his best ERA in three seasons, but his worst FIP. He was at 320, and that, again, that goes back to my whole rant about the Musgrove ERA whip thing, but he was at 320-123 and clearly played above his head to get that 320 whip when, or ERA when you look at the skills. It was a career-low 10% strikeout minus walk rate, easily a career-high 10% walk rate, up from 7%. And the 20% strikeout rate wasn't a career low or anything. It's actually kind of in line with his career mark, but it was three ticks off of what he had done in 2017. So Michael Walker had a bad year. He also got hurt again. He pitched 84 innings, and that that remains an issue with him. Um, and it's just a matter of how much of the previously injured guys. Now, this this would be a case. So I talked earlier about what Jeff says about injury recurrence and and 
how injury prone somebody is. If, is it the same sort of things that are happening? Is it a mixture of things? We have a few shoulder issues and then an oblique, which I f- feel like people that are injury experts could correct me. I feel like if the oblique, well, it's actually on the other side. It still relates to your pitching, but it's not necessarily related to the shoulder. I was going to make like a proximity relation argument, which I probably shouldn't have because I don't understand injuries near as much as those anybody, I guess, except for any other basic guy who just, you know, watches enough games to try to get some idea on what timetables will be, but doesn't truly understand injury. I don't think I'm out on a limb here uh, or on an island saying I don't really understand the full-scale nature of injuries. But anyway, Waka likes to pile them up. Um, he gets hurt in even years, though. This is foolproof. 2014, 2016, 2018. Those are the only years he's had at the Elston. So he's not getting hurt this year. Draft Waka in the third round. No, obviously don't do that. I hate obliques, though. And once the oblique came through last year, I was even cutting my Waka shares because, first off, I knew that a reckoning was coming uh, with these skills the ERA is going up if he doesn't if he doesn't start pitching better. So I thought there was a reckoning on the way anyway. And with an oblique, the the shower leagues where I had Michael Waka, it was easy to just move on from it. And he never ended up coming back. He was done after June 20th. So why am I buying back this year? Again, it's really more of a track record thing. And, and I still see skills here that I like despite the rotten season. You know, 84 innings. An 84 inning throwaway season was changeup was still awesome. And that was basically what was sustaining him throughout that run where Michael Waka actually, until his last two starts, he had a 247 ERA through 13 starts. But again, not really the skills to match. He did have two games of reckoning, so to speak, allowing uh, a total of 12 runs, ten of them, nine of them earned in seven and two thirds with just four strikeouts, four homers allowed, and six walks. And, of course, then goes out with an oblique injury. you got to believe that those things were probably related to one another. Probably had that oblique before one of those start, before those two starts, I would imagine. I would guess. I would guess. I don't know. You know, you never know, like, when an injury starts, right? They go out for a certain injury. Well, how many starts back do you go to say that this might have affected it? Well, there is no set in stone number because it, it depends on the injury, right? You know, so was the oblique affecting him when he threw eight innings of one hit ball on June 3rd? Or did it start after the June 9th start when he threw five and two-thirds of two runs for Waka? Or did it start when he gave up eight earned in four innings? Like, was was did something twinge that inning with the, the with the oblique straining? Or, or that game, not that inning, but in that game that caused him to then get shellacked. And he's like, ah, I'll get through it. Waits five days, pitches against Philly, gives up six hits, three runs, two of them earned uh, in three and two-thirds, 75 pitches. You know, it's not his day. And voila, his season's over. I don't know. Then that's with Michael Waka there. That I'm sorry, a couple pronouns there, but Michael Waka. I'm gonna jump back in though because I think the price is cheap enough to take him as as a glob pick for sure. He's 258. Um, you know, he's fully globbed up. So I'm not gonna overinvest, but I still love. I'm still rooting for him, and I love. I, I'm a sucker for a guy with a great changeup too. And that's regularly, not consistently, because it hasn't every single year been a premium pitch for Waka, but it has regularly been his go-to pitch and, and a very good one for him. And last year, it was arguably the best that we've seen since those first couple seasons when it was really premium and he had a fastball to go with it. If he gets his fastball back on track, and, and Waka needs to stay healthy. That's first and foremost. Um, it's not as easy to say health. He- if he gets health, the skills are there because they weren't there last year. But 
players aren't just their previous seasons. So I'm still looking at the grander track record here with Waka. And I know that there isn't a, an, a standout like, holy crap. Here's the smoking gun on on Waka and why he's going to strike out 25%. I'm not necessarily saying that, but I think he can live with a an earned mid three ZRA, meaning that his indicators would be there as well. His FIP, Sierra, all that sort of secondary stuff based on the components that he would have. So get the strikeout rate up in the low 20s, get the walk rate back down to 7% for Michael Waka, operating with like a 10 plus percent swinging strike rate, you know, staying healthy. Boom, we're at a 330 ERA with a 360 FIP, and I'm taking it all the way to the bank at pick 238. So Waka remains a fave. And finally, the last one here, again, this was where I, I eschewed Brandon Woodruff. I eschewed my two my two Milwaukee guys, Jimmy Nelson and Brandon Woodruff. I still love them. They're still my Valentines. They just didn't get to make this list uh, because I have I've feel like I've beaten the drum on Brandon Woodruff. He was recently in a piece too. So I'll go with Steven Matz. And there's some track record factor to this one as well. And the fact that I think his season last year kind of snuck up or or the fact that he did pretty well. By the way, ADP for Waka or excuse me, for Mats is literally the next pick after Waka. 258 to, um, well, actually, so. It lists their ADP, but then it ranks them. So he's the 255th player behind Waka at 254, but then it gives you their actual ADP because of like ties and stuff. Those two numbers can be different. So Matt's is 261 and Waka's 258. So they're right by each other. And you could take either or really, um, depending on who you like better. But I think the close of Matt's season was a a little bit hidden. I'm not sure everyone saw what he did when he came back. You know, injuries have plagued Mats for a while too, so that's why you really can just kind of take your pick between Mats and Waka, righty lefty, not versions of each other, but but similar kind of profiles. A strained pronator and ulnar nerve irritation; those are two things. Uh, excuse me, um, the the ulnar nerve was 17 for Mats. Did he get the same ulnar nerve surgery that Degrom and Fulmer got? I wonder. But anyway, it was a a strained. F- flexor pronator that gave him a DL stint last year from Steven Matz and he came off the DL on August 21st after oh no no hang on I, I, I'm gonna include the crummy start his actual return was a two inning dud but I'll I'll, I'll loop that one in here because I'll just take it from right when he came off the DL and it was on August 16th and he threw nine starts he put up a 311 ERA and a 104 whip with 53 strikeouts against 17 walks for Steven Matz in that time. And so he was kind of clicking to a level that we've seen before. You know, we've seen Steven Matz be good. There was a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of hype on him um, off of just a 36 inning sample back in 15. He comes out in 2016, basically backs it up. I mean, his ERA in whip went up because. Well, actually, his whip went down. His ERA went up. But it was a six-start six sample anyway. It didn't really matter what he did in 15. But in 16, he did throw 22 starts, 340 ERA, 121 whip, um, solid strikeouts and walks, 129 strikeouts in those 132 and a third innings. 
But injuries struck again, and then they ate up most of 2017. He only threw 60-70 innings, and they were bad. And then last year, Matt's return, he got 154, career-high 154 innings, 397 ERA, 1-2-4, or excuse me, 1-2-5 whip. And no one's really talking about him. Now, not no one. I'm sure there's somebody out there. But there's not a lot of buzz. And this feels like somebody who would be worthy of buzz, given that we've seen him be very good before. One of his primary problems is is one of the more fixable ones. It's not just like snap your fingers and you do it. It's home runs, by the way. Um, he's had a 1-3 career rate. Now, a lot of it probably contributed from the one6 in those 66 innings of 2017. But 1.5 last year, like that's pretty bad. Like, that's bad. Not pretty bad. That's bad. I won't couch it. That was a bad home run rate for Stephen Matz. 17% home and a fly ball rate each of the last two years. That seems a little bit, you know, it's it's higher than average. And a lot of times, the, the data has shown that home run to fly ball rate has a, a certain random factor to it. Like, it's not all that controllable. There Obviously, there are guys on the edges, but in the middle... Of, of approaches, you know, the the heavy ground ball, someone throwing those bowling balls, they can, you know, help manage it better. But even them, not always, right? Because it's not so much about being fly ball versus ground ball, particularly with your home run to fly ball rate. Your total home runs are, but your actual rate. And I can't really find anything in Matt's profile that suggests why he should have a 17% home run to fly ball rate yielding a ton of homers. And I wonder if it's something, you know, where when he misses, he misses poor. Like his his command is awful, and he just throws meatballs like crazy. the The interesting thing about his final flourish there, where Matt's had a three eleven ERA, is that the home runs didn't really go away. They were still part of that. They were at one six. So it is something that I am keeping a close eye on, and that's probably part of what's tamping down some of the excitement on Matt's and why why the the fair price, the more than fair price, is still there for Matt's but again that's always been one of the more fixable aspects uh, of a of an approach particularly if it's command related and you just leave you know too many meatballs if it's if it's part of your approach that you know you try to work up with your fastball and you can't you're not effective at it and so you just end up in the upper third of the zone and your meatball city uh, particularly when you miss then that's the different thing but if it's if it's you know the ran- the more random aspects of okay the meatball was here and it was just so hit you know it was just too hittable another homer another homer it's been high it's been high for these last 220 innings or whatever but it was at a very reasonable 1.0 before that right so we have two kind of samples here 220 innings by the way and then his first 168 innings it was at 1.0 so for me, I don't see Matt's with having a, a pronounced home run issue that cannot be fixed. Because if you just regress the home run rate back to even, I don't know, 12%. And 10% is average, I believe. So he was at 16.6% last year, which yielded 25 homers. And if you put him at just a 12% mark, that's seven homers chopped off. Like that, that could be a pretty substantial portion of his 397 ERA. Now, again, maybe that's something I'll investigate when I do a further deep dive on Matt's is to see what 
is behind the homers, if there's anything similar, if this is something we should continue to expect from Steven Matz. But I'm still going to buy right now at 261 for Matz. And that's going to wrap up my 10 Valentine's Day pitchers, 10 of my favorites from my top 75. Hopefully you got further insight into why I like these guys. Let me know what you think about them. I understand some of the pushback on some, or, you know, pushback on some of them for sure. And, and let, let's let's talk about it. Let's debate it. That's totally fine. I do think there's a little bit of herd mentality with like Kershaw and Bumgarner. I'm not sure everyone knows why they're out, but they're seeing some other folks be out and they don't want to be caught holding the bag. And I just don't know that we're, we're that fine in our projections that to be able to see like to see that necessarily coming. I, I I don't know. I don't want to get off on a whole tangent on that and make this podcast another hour long. But I, I see some of the warning signs. I do. Like I, I understand that Kershaw is not all capital letters Kershaw. But I mean, that's why he's not going number one among pitchers and in the first round anymore too, right? So you know, I've had a kind of no, an overarching thing about like what's baked into the price and projection and what's being double counted. And if we're getting Kershaw at 36, aren't we putting the risk into that price? Is he still not a strong, how is he still not a strong play there? I guess is what I'm asking. If, Cause we were so gung ho that he was a first rounder these last several years. And he was, he was awesome. He has this year which wasn't his best, but was still so good. I think that's where I get, again, I get lost there. Like, it was still so good. And now we got to run for the hills as if that was the beginning of the end? I don't know. I I, I don't think I can do that with Kershaw. Bumgarner's a little bit of a different case. I, I will continue to separate them while also grouping them. I, I know it's confusing and a little bit contradictory, but... I, I will use them together for the general point and then split off into the actual risk factors and, and, and individual cases because I'm not trying to say Kershaw and Bumgarner are one and the same. First off, Bumgarner was never as good as Kershaw, so it'd be relative to the previous heights that they reached. And for me, I'm going to bet against the public and take this discount on Kershaw. That's just, that's just me. Anyway, uh recap there was... The top ten from my top thirty-five from my top seventy-five in in groups of fifteen here, two two from each group. Noah Syndergaard at eight, Clayton Kershaw at ten, Carlos Martinez at twenty-six, Yu Darvish at twenty-eight, Charlie Morton at thirty-one, Luis Castillo at thirty-five, Joe Musgrove at forty-seven, Anibal Sanchez at fifty-four, Michael Waka at um, where'd you go, Waka? Sixty-seven, excuse me, and then Stephen Matz at seventy-two. With some honorable mentions sprinkled in there, just of guys that you, you were probably expecting, but I was trying to be a little bit, a little bit different, give you a few different guys there. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Um, I'll be back tomorrow with Justin.